0: great american ballpark it's the better off red podcast here's your host
1: jamie ramsey hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the better off red podcast i'm so happy you took the time to seek us out and tune in this week we have a very special treat for you today as former reds publicity director jim ferguson who for my money is every bit a reds hall of famer joins us to tell us about his historic run as the club's PR man during some of the organization's best times and through some of its worst. Jim recounts the Big Red Machine years, his tenure under Marge Schott, the events of 1989 that led to Pete Rose's banishment, and that unforgettable 1990 championship team. Jim is a walking, talking, historic Reds resource that I think you Reds fans will really enjoy hearing from. Before we get to Jim Ferguson, I'd like to take a second to remind you folks in the Cincinnati area that every Tuesday night in December, the Reds Hot Stove League radio show will broadcast live from the Holy Grail Banks directly across the street from Great American Ballpark from 6 to 7 p.m. It's a great way to get your Reds fixed while the team is in winter hibernation mode. The one-hour radio program is always followed by Better Off Red Baseball Trivia, hosted by yours truly. So that's yet another reason why you should come down to break up your work week with Reds baseball. Come on down Tuesday nights to the Holy Grail Banks for the Reds Hot Stove League and Better Off Red Baseball Trivia. He began covering the Reds for the Dayton Daily News in 1959. He became the club's PR director in 1973 and worked in that capacity through the World Championship year of 1990. He had a brief stint with the Padres for an office in the 90s before spending several years working for minor league baseball. He's now retired and living in the Cincinnati area and still sees quite a few games from the GABP press box. Here's my friend, Jim Ferguson. Jim Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us here on the Better Off Red podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be joined by one of the legendary PR men who I'm actually thrilled and uh, delighted to be able to call my friend.
0: Well, I, I share that with you. So I, uh, it's always good to, to talk with you, Jamie, whether it's in the press box or over the phone or anywhere else.
1: Excellent. Hey, with let's just get right into it. With the all right, with the winter meetings coming up fast, you have some amusing memories of the annual off-season meeting. So uh, let's get into that. T- tell us some of your. Uh, your uh, your funny anecdotes from the winter meetings.
0: Well, I'll tell you the, uh, I've I have had some I've, the winter meetings just to start off. The winter meetings is one of my favorite events in baseball,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, I, I guess I've probably been to just about every event in baseball that there is uh, over the fifty years I was involved. But the winter meetings is a time where you literally get to see everybody in baseball because yep. whether it's minor league, major league executives, scouts, uh, managers, broadcasters, everybody goes to the winter meetings and it's, you, uh, you, you can't move through a lobby without stopping to talk to somebody. So <laughs> it's always great fun. But one of the, one of the great, uh, uh, things for me was, uh, when i when i i was a sports writer in Dayton at the daily dayton news uh covering the reds and then in uh, 1972 i i joined the reds uh in the media relations and uh, my uh i started at the reds on a monday and uh left on wednesday for the winter meeting <laughs> which was a nice way to start mm. and uh what made it even better was They were being held that year in Honolulu, Mm. and we were the the hotel was right on the beach uh, uh, at Waikiki Beach, and it was just it was an incredible experience. But uh, it was a little unusual for me because uh, I was so new to the ball club, and I you know anytime you're in a new job, you're sort of feeling your way through it and so forth. Right. uh, I was there with with my wife. We had uh, just just by coincidence we had planned to go uh, to the uh, winter meetings that year anyway, uh, not on assignment for the Daily News, but uh, the commissioner's office had set up uh, uh, charter flights from all over the country at a very reasonable price to get everybody to go to Honolulu. They'd never been held. You know, in a place like that before. Right. And uh, so I said that we always wanted to, to take a vacation to Hawaii, and uh, this was a good opportunity to do it, and we'd be able to see a lot of people we knew, and and also at a at a reasonable price. So it was kind of like a signing bonus that uh, <laughs> that I got. <laughs> that all of a sudden, I uh, the money that I had paid for this was was returned <laughs> to me by the, by, the, by the ball club. But anyway, so I'm I'm out there and uh, uh, being new to the organization, I wanted to make sure everything was you know was just done absolutely right. So basically, I never uh, I never left the hotel uh, at all uh, for the whole week because I always wanted to be on call. You got to remember this is before the time of cell phones and things, so communications with people on the staff. Uh, with, it, 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 there was just a standing rule that you you checked in with, at the at the team suite uh, either by phone or in person uh, at least once an hour to, or, or maybe often or just to be sure that mm. uh, uh, you know that nothing was happening or yeah. somebody wasn't trying to reach you or whatever sure. because there was no yeah. way to
2: communicate
0: the way you can uh, now so. Uh, but one of one of the great things about being in Hawaii was the time difference. That uh, if you got to uh, seven o'clock, six thirty, dinner time, uh, it was midnight in the east, and nobody wanted to make any announcements or any trades or anything. So your evenings were kind of free always all week because uh, of this of this time difference. Sure. If, even if you got an agreement on a trade, that you know uh, during the evening. Nobody wanted to announce it at one o'clock in the morning Eastern or something. <laughs> exactly, so,
2: exactly.
0: so you were good till the next day. So, so I go around all week, and I'm uh, uh, like I say, I'm, I'm always in the hotel. So we get to we get to the end of the week, which is which in those days was on a Friday, and there was a firm trading deadline on back in those days. There was a midnight Friday at the winter meetings was it was it firm trading deadline mm-hmm. so uh, we got to uh, we got to lunchtime on Friday and and uh, I was talking to Bob Hausen the general manager and he and he said we have absolutely nothing going on just, you know don't worry about anything this afternoon we're not even talking to anybody uh, and I said well I just I, you know I could take my wife out to lunch he says fine don't worry about it just whenever you come back check in but he said, we got absolutely nothing going on
1: <laughs> famous so last we words
0: went, famous last words. yeah <laughs> uh so we go to lunch and uh and and there was a little uh, like an outdoor uh, mall of, of hawaii products and things and we were wandering around and in fact we we ran into uh, janet house and, uh, bob's wife and spent a little time with her wandering around this place and about three, three thirty, I guess uh, we wandered back to the hotel, and I, I walked in. The, uh, back in those days, it, you always had to go to the front desk and pick up your telephone messages, and mm-hmm. there was a, you know, usually a pink slip up in your, up in your uh, room in the box for your room, mm-hmm. and uh, so I go there, and and, and uh, there I look up, and there's a. Big stack of pink messages in in this uh, box, and, uh, and while I was while I'm standing there before I get them, uh, the uh, the PR guy at the time for the Mets uh, walked up next to me and he said, uh, that, "That was some trade, wasn't it?" And uh, and I said, "Oh, did you guys make a trade?" And he said, "No, you did." <laughs> I said, "What?" <laughs> he said, "Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the red Redson- and and Kansas City made a trade. I said, and by that time I get these handful of messages: check at the suite, see this, see that, call so and so. So I run up. I run up to the suite, and and, and I find out we've made what turned out to, to be, I think, uh, maybe the only big trade we made that winter. Uh, we traded uh, Al McRae and uh, the outfielder and Wayne Simpson, who was who had had a, a great uh, rookie mm-hmm. season for us as a pitcher, to uh, Kansas City for uh, Roger Nelson, a starting pitcher, and outfielder Richie Scheinberg. And I find out about it. Uh, and and, and the, the other thing about that was the Kansas City PR guy was also not there <laughs> for it. He had been told nothing was going on. He and his wife had, had taken a, uh, a, a jet, rented a car and, had driven around to the north shore oh. of, uh, of Oahu to uh, see the surf over there, which is uh, spectacular. <laughs> and so he wasn't there, and I wasn't there either. <laughs> so uh, you never know what's going to happen at the winter meetings oh. other than it's going to be something unusual.
1: Absolutely. But no. the, the,
0: the, the, the follow-up correlation to that trade was uh, 18 years later, I uh, went to my uh, winter meetings in 1990 Mm -hmm. uh, after I had joined the San Diego Padres in the the same job. (laughs) And interestingly enough, my absolute first day on the Padres payroll was the first day of the winter meetings. (laughs) And... uh, we made a blockbuster trade up there, one of the one of the, one of the, the biggest uh, uh, from a name standpoint of, of recent years uh, with uh, with uh, with Toronto, and, but at least uh, uh, I was around <laughs> to, to participate in that. And uh, that was, was the, uh, the
1: Joe Carter and Fred McGriff Carter
0: trade. And, uh, and, uh, and Tony Fernandez and uh, uh, the second baseman
1: Robbie uh, Alomar,
0: Bobby Robbie Alomar, <laughs> and it was uh, it was really a a, a stunning trade that uh, was by far the biggest trade from a name value uh, uh, that happened uh, anytime uh, anytime that winter. I mean, by by far, it was uh, Joe McIlvain, who was the, the new Padre's general manager felt that he had to get a shortstop. He had, a, he had a, a potentially great Alomar was still a young player, but he was already very good. Right. But he was uh, at second base. He was the star infielder at second base, and Alomar or uh, McDon- uh, uh, McElveen felt that he had to have a, a you know a, a star shortstop right. to anchor the infield. And so he wanted Fernandez, so he was willing to give up Almar to get Fernandez, and then these other guys <laughs> went on to become a, a World Series hero for the for the Blue Jays as well. And of course, course is in the Hall of Fame. So
1: yeah, and Fred McGriff was, was no slouch either.
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. That was a, that was a, that was a, a a spectacular beginning to my career. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was your first day on the payroll, huh?
0: First
1: day on the payroll. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Fergie. A lot of a lot of folks don't understand. I, I think a lot of folks have the misconception that the winter meetings is simply a spot for major league general managers to get around uh, in a hotel lobby and make trades. But there's a lot more that goes into that, right?
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It it's actually. Uh, uh, set up and uh, organized by uh, the minor league organization, yep. the national association, which is uh, now disclosed by the name of minor league baseball, but that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, they, and I, after I left the, uh, the Padres, I, I went to the national association for mm-hmm. 13 years to, uh, and as a media relations there. And th- if they, uh, Every, every minor league team, and there's 160 of them now uh, that are affiliated with, uh, you know, as farm teams for Major League Baseball, they almost all have individual ownerships. Uh, there are a handful that are actually owned by a major league team, but most of them are owned by uh, individuals or small corporations or, or whatever. And they all go to uh, the winter meetings. That's their primary business convention. It has uh, turned into a uh, one of the, the largest trade shows of any, anything in the country, where now every uh, uh, manufacturer of equipment and uh, uh, trinkets and, mm-hmm. and shirts and uh, uh, giveaway items at the ballparks mm-hmm. and uh, anything related to baseball have the have their uh, uh, Booths set up there, and, and there's a tremendous amount of business takes place, uh, both by major league teams and minor league teams, in in you know purchasing merchandise of that type. And there's and there's a lot of uh, business. Every every uh, league has its own meeting at the winter meetings and uh, get into their uh, various things that they're involved with, as well as uh, the overall minor league structure and the overall major league structure. And uh, I would say most uh, major league teams, uh, at least in my, my experience there, uh, will have anywhere from you know, eight, 8 to 10 up to 15 or 20 people uh, at the winter meetings yep. uh, with their scouts, their top baseball people, their, uh, their uh, executives, uh, it used to be uh, for many years that was the also the winter meeting uh, the uh, the winter session of the owners meetings mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that was uh, they have since moved the owners meetings the quarterly owners meetings into January I think but at, at, for many years and and I was uh, I, I think I went to like 35. Winter meetings in a row, something like that. It was a it was a big deal yeah. uh, for the owners to to come in. In fact, that was a, a, a factor in in one of the only uh, downers I would say that uh, about the winter meeting when they went to Honolulu for the first time, and that was in seventy two, my first year. That was the first time they'd ever been in Hawaii, and it was they everybody liked it so much because for particularly for the minor league uh, clubs. It's, it's like a a lot of them will take you know three or four of their top uh, uh, uh,
1: Executives. employees yeah. mm-hmm.
0: as well as the as well as the owner of the team and it's kind of a reward for the hard work they put in all year so sure. to go to a place like Honolulu and be on the beach at Waikiki I mean that was great so it was <laughs> it was uh, it was set up that they were going to go 7 a short meeting and and with the time difference you know being a factor also
1: so those are the the owners are the reason why i i was in indianapolis a few years ago for the winter meetings and and it was raining and snowing and freezing cold Uh, yeah (laughs) that
0: you can blame it on the owner okay
1: (laughs) no disrespect (laughs) to indianapolis
0: don't do it probably don't do it personally (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly the uh, the most intriguing uh, experience I had at the winter meetings, though, was that was at the uh, was at another one in Honolulu, uh, which was in '77 when when Bob Howsam uh, walked back into he had been over in, in his bedroom making a, 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 on a telephone call and came back into the suite where. There were eight or ten of us, and he said, well, we just made a trade, I think. (laughs) And he said, we got Vita Blue from the Oakland Athletics. Mm And Vita Blue was the number one pitcher in baseball at that time. And uh, we as Reds made the deal for Vita Blue. The the kicker in it was that Charlie Finley, who was the owner of the A's at the time, uh, was trying to sell the team, and, and he was in bad shape from a money standpoint, apparently. And he had made a point of of getting rid of his stars, not for playing talent, but for money. And he had tried to... He had sold the Vita Blue earlier uh, to the Yankees, I believe, uh, for a million dollars, back when a million dollars... A lot of money. It still is to some of us. Uh, but there was a lot of money involved. And the, and the commissioner had, had voided that trade and said and, and that he was going to have to take a personal look at every trade Charlie Finley made uh, because he wanted it.
1: Absolutely and, did. Uh,
0: and, uh, uh, we, so then, uh, we still, uh, they, they still wanted to make a trade, uh, with Oakland and that's how we got Doug bear who became a, a very good relief pitcher for us. Mm-hmm. We got Doug bear, uh, for Dave referring and, and some amount of cash. I don't, I don't know, remember what, how much money it was at the time, but, uh,
1: uh, that could have we did,
0: been, get, a, we did get a trade.
1: <laughs> that that would have been a, that's always an interesting thing when I go through the old media guides. I, I turn that page in the nineteen seventy eight Reds media guide and see Vita Blue's picture and his bio in there as if he were a member of the team and I think what would have happened or what could have been if Vita Blue was in that rotation with Tom Seaver and and, and those folks.
0: That would have been very interesting. I, I think there would have been one more postseason appearance for the Big Red Machine, <laughs> right.
2: right
1: there. <laughs> hey, Fergie, you started your professional journey into baseball as a Reds beat writer. A lot of folks might not know that. With the Dayton Daily News, that was in 1959, right?
0: 1959, yeah.
1: And right. that, and how in the world did you end up working on the other side as the Reds publicity director?
0: Well, uh, I, I had, had been a, a beat writer. uh, Like I say, starting in 1959 and uh, and, uh, in 1970, after the World Series, uh, uh, again, around the time of the winter meetings, I guess, uh, or shortly after that, I I got a call from uh, uh, Hausam and and said that uh, he would like to to talk to me about... uh, uh, Coming, joining the team in, uh, in media relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Seaberg had uh, had been with the, uh, been, had the job with the Reds, and he had come to uh, the Reds when they when the team uh, was sold uh, uh, when the, uh, Bill DeWitt sold the team to the group of Cincinnati people uh, in the '67 mm-hmm. after the '67 season, I believe it was, and. Um, Seberg had uh, li- and his wife had lived in California all their lives and they wanted to go back to California. So the job was opening up. And so I uh, went down for an interview and, uh, was offered the job and, or, and the problem was I, I, had never, I thought I was going to be a sports writer the rest of my life. You know, that's, that was all I'd ever done or wanted to do. And, uh, it was like uh, four days before Christmas. Uh, they, they wanted an almost immediate answer. Uh, I had not even thought about changing, you know, changing, and all of this happening at Christmas, and it was a big surprise to my wife, oh, who, yeah. uh, who was born and who lived in Dayton. And she she was born and grew up in Dayton, and and it was just uh, I just wasn't prepared to consider that kind of a career change and everything. Sure. And uh, so I turned it down. And uh, so then uh, the more I thought about it in the next few weeks, I kept thinking, uh, you know, I think I would really like to do that. Uh, So the next time I saw Bob, which was – I don't know if it was in the winter or it was early in the season or whatever. I uh, sat down with him one, one day and we were talking and, and I said that to kind of explain what, you know, what was my thinking at the time. And I said, I think I would really like to, uh, to do this. And if the situation ever comes up again, I would like to, to be considered for it. And he said, well, I'll certainly keep that in mind. Two years later. The phone rings again, <laughs> and they said we're making a change in the in the media relations uh, job, which was called uh, director of publicity. It was the title at the time. And uh, he said, "Would you like to uh, Would you like to talk to us again?" I said, "I certainly would." And that time, I said, "Yes, I'm ready to I'm ready to make the move," <laughs> and never looked back. It was great. It was a great experience.
1: Can you um, can you give the folks who are listening uh, an idea of of what being the Reds publicity director in the seventies entailed?
0: In the seventies, it was uh, the talent level was so high that what you basically tried to do, uh, and and, and as everybody knows, it had the big four stars of uh, Mm -hmm. of uh, Rose. Benchman, Morgan and Perez, uh, and they were uh, so each so different from a uh, uh, their approach to the game. They, their their drive for the game was was the same, but their approach to life, their their philosophies, their personalities were very different. Mm-hmm. And so a, a lot of times uh, when uh, when dealing with the media, it was a, a matter of Matching up, uh, uh, this guy I know is interested in this kind of a story, and the best the best guy to talk to for that kind of a story mm-hmm. is Morgan, or the best guy for this kind of a story is Finch, or whatever it may be. Plus, you had other, I'll, I'll say lesser players, but they, <laughs> they weren't much lesser, you know, <laughs> in, in Grippy and Concepcion and... Foster. I mean, you're you're dealing uh, Gullett, Billingham, dealing with a lot of very, very talented, good players. Yeah, and uh, so uh, you didn't have to, you didn't have to go seeking a lot of media attention. It was more a matter of trying to control it a little <laughs>
1: bit. <laughs> so what you you kind of touched upon it a little bit earlier when i mean you worked in an era where there was no internet no cell phones did that make your job easier or harder or a combination of both
0: well i would say it's probably a combination of both uh it certainly was vastly different uh, one thing that uh, you, you didn't you didn't have which which has to be incredibly difficult for those of you involved in it now is the is the way everything is on a 24-hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. There, there's no time off. I mean, it, 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 just as I mentioned about being reaching uh, dinner time in Honolulu, <laughs> if you reach uh, uh, a certain time of night, any time of the year, you knew nothing was going to happen because there wasn't going to be any stories breaking, that good or bad, sure. that uh, that could affect your life. Mm-hmm. And and there's now uh, that can happen at uh, uh, two in the morning or three in the afternoon or mm-hmm. seven at night or any other of the 24 hours.
1: And it happens. <laughs> and it
0: does happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. So like- but it's
0: a different uh, it, it's it, it's really a total, totally different uh, job and approach. I mean, the whole the whole industry has changed from that point, standpoint. And one of the biggest factors, obviously, is uh, is what has happened to the newspaper business.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh,
0: the, and the way the way newspaper people cover things, and and the way uh, cable cable news mm-hmm. and television and radio cover things.
1: So, how did like? Give me an example on how you got a request. Say the Dayton Daily News wants to talk to Pete Rose on a about a you know a uh, an off season. Uh, piece regarding a charity or something. Did they just, did they call you? Did they mail you snail mail or how did they go about
0: that? Uh, no, it, it would be, it, it would be mostly a, a telephone call, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it would be more so not from, uh, from local uh, an area of news people as from uh, people from around the country because, um, uh, Rose and, and uh, Bench and, and, uh, and pretty much all the red players were uh, very accessible to local and area media. And so they, they already, uh, if they wanted to talk to Pete, uh, for instance, they, they knew he was going to be at the UC basketball game that night <laughs> or the Xavier game showed up at more local sports events than, uh, than any sports writer ever did. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if there was anything going on in, in Cincinnati he was he was usually there. Mm-hmm. so they just you know all they had to do was to uh, show up and, and, and either talk to him there or set up a time to you know meet him for lunch or whatever it might sure. be and, and it was the same way with a lot of other players they, they made their their telephone numbers available. Uh, there's, I, I, I would guess, there's much less of that going on now. It's uh, uh, people protect their their phone numbers mm-hmm. and, uh, much better now than they they did then. It was yeah. a, a different a, a different way of
1: life in those days. How how full was that Riverfront Stadium press box in the seventies?
0: It was uh, it was a jumping place, that's for sure. <laughs> it was uh, it was a uh, 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 it was full. Pretty much every night Uh, we had uh, uh, papers from, you know, not on a necessarily everyday basis, but uh, every weekend there would be people coming in from uh, papers around Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio. They would come in maybe for the weekend and and, uh, spend Saturday and Sunday with us, Uh, so it was a uh, and, and a lot of them were, uh, you know, small town dailies and things like that. And uh, we, we had uh, we had the room to take care of them. We had a we had a kind of an overflow press box uh, just down from the regular press box, which which seated as, as many or more maybe than the, than the regular press box. So uh, space was not a problem for us. And uh, and if the the Reds. We uh, were very much uh, a regional team. We mm-hmm. considered it uh, in, in the front office, we considered it a regional team sure. that we, we depended on uh, a, a wide area of business. And uh, we were fortunate to, to be uh, surrounded. Uh, I'll, I'll use that word surrounded, but uh, the way I looked at it at the time. Of, of major cities, uh, uh, kind of circling us with, with Columbus, then Dayton, then Indianapolis, then oh, yeah. Louisville, then mm-hmm. Lexington, and then Huntington and Charleston, sure. West Virginia.
1: Yeah, we still so, consider it that way. And it's,
0: uh, you know, it's it, you 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 need all that business, and uh, and the business was there. People wanted to come in, uh, and uh, they they leathered in there and filled the. When, when you're in a city the size of Cincinnati to uh, draw uh, two, two, up 2 to 2.4 or 5 million uh, several years in a row as we did mm-hmm. uh, in those days was just uh, – it was unheard of.
1: <laughs> did you ever have any problems with media? Like did you have to ever kick anybody out of the clubhouse or revoke a credential?
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: not it. Not back in the big red machine days. I don't. Uh, I don't think we ever had anything like that. Uh, the, the one thing you you always had to be on the alert for was uh, uh, I'll say phonies, uh, somebody yeah. who didn't belong there but uh, figured out some way to try to get uh, somebody to, to get a a uh, uh, credential for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: uh, so. Uh, the only thing that 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 I tried to to work, watch, and to work on was when you would have uh, a, a, maybe a small town paper come in, and they weren't sure just what the protocol was right. and how to go about things. Mm-hmm. You sort of had to kind of maybe pull them aside and say, you know, that that isn't the way you do things. Right. You have to do this and that. But it was more of a little education than anything else and uh uh, and it was never a continuing problem you know like i say you you might have to tell somebody like that once but you Mm -hmm. usually never had to do it more than once
1: yeah that still goes on today and actually the media and you'll attest to this does a pretty good job of policing itself
0: absolutely absolutely
1: were you ever told specifically to spin something big in order to you know quell what could have been bad publicity
0: Uh, you know, nothing. Uh, I don't. Uh, nothing really comes to mind uh, along that line. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, we. 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 Uh, when you talk about bad publicity, the, the the only thing that happened for for many many years was uh, was eventually. What developed with Pete, of course, but absolutely, yep. th- there wasn't anything to to spin there. You just <laughs> had to deal with
1: it. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. Did um, let's talk a little bit about Sparky. How was he to deal with
0: Sparky? Was uh, incredibly good. He was available for anything and everything. I don't I don't recall him ever turning down anything I ever asked him to do. In all those years, the, the, the only, the only problem, if you, if you would say a problem I had with Sparky was, and this goes back to the winter meetings, is the winter meetings for uh, forever has been held in, almost always in hotels with big lobbies that were just jammed full of people. Yeah. Sparky could not walk through a lobby. Without stopping every twenty feet <laughs> to talk to somebody, I can see that. And so, to get him from one spot to another, when you were you know when you had someplace particularly for him to, to go, it just I mean, it, if it was a if it was a two minute trip, it, it took twenty minutes to a half hour to get there just because. He could not ask people without stopping to say hello, and when he stopped to say hello, they would chat for two or three minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I might get a call, or I might be talking, or I might have been up in the suite with Bob Houseland, and he said, uh, uh, go find Sparky and get him, get him up here, we need to talk. <laughs> and so I would find him, and, and that, it took me twenty minutes to yeah. get him back to the suite. Come on, sir. Yeah. Bob needs to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. I'm okay. Oh wait a
1: minute!
2: I see Charlie over there. <laughs> I bet his. his, it, his just
0: with you know, it was like that. Uh, it was like that I, everywhere, but particularly winter meetings. Sure. Trying to get him through the lobby was just was
2: incredible. I bet the his, other, his. The other
0: thing that was. Uh, the other thing that, uh, that a deal with Sparky was that uh, he, he would make, uh, some of the most outlandish statements, you know, <laughs> ever. I mean, nothing, he held nothing back. If he, if he felt like saying something, he, he was going to say it. And,
2: uh,
0: <laughs> back, in, back in the 70s, because of, uh, of the prominence uh, that we had, I, I would get a call, uh, Sports, Sports Illustrated back in those days, and maybe they still do. I don't know. Uh, they would, they, if somebody was doing a, a big feature, they would they would have what they called a fact checker, who would call to try to verify various facts that the writer had put in the story. And I I used to get a in in the season, I used to get a story or a call every Sunday evening from the uh, fact checker at Sports Illustrated uh about cuz there was always a story of, of somebody from the from the machine in in the, in the magazine and uh so one day I one Sunday I get this call and he said uh and it was always the same guy so we became almost friends <laughs> and uh he said oh, we got a story on Sparky uh, this week he said did he really say that? <laughs> and I said you can stop right there. I said whatever it is, I will verify that he said it because pretty much during the week he said everything you can imagine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he was he was probably a treat in those daily manager meetings with the media, wasn't he?
0: Oh, absolutely. As the media loved him, I mean and uh, with, with good reason because uh, he didn't. He wouldn't hold anything back, and, and he and he had strong opinions, and and he would he would see uh you know he he might see a kid in uh, in, uh, in in uh, from double A and spring training or something, and uh, you know in that day's meaning, said, oh, I mean I, I don't know what's going to keep this kid from the Hall of Fame, you know he's he's got this and that, and then <laughs> they say Sparky, he only hit two thirty last year at. Uh, double <laughs> uh, A well yeah but the, the, have you seen the way he's developed this spring he is on his way he's gonna, <laughs> he'll be with us before very long
1: <laughs> okay I'm going to give you three names and I want you to just give us a brief uh, synopsis on uh, on your thoughts on the three people that I'm going to um, ask you about one is Bob Housam the other is Dick Wagner and the third is Marge Schott
0: Wow, that's a trio for you. (laughs) Well, I I certainly would start with Bob Hausen, who was a, I would say, a brilliant baseball mind who should be in the Hall of Fame. And he was also one of the greatest people persons I was ever around. He knew... He knew uh, uh, from the staff. The staff at the at the Reds was not huge, but it, you know it involved a lot of people. Mm-hmm. He knew every every man's wife's name. He knew every wife, every woman's husband's name. He would ask about them. He knew how many kids they had. Uh, he uh, was very thoughtful in his in his uh, in his uh, dealings with. things that I learned very early about him, and I I appreciated it very much, was that first winter meetings in in Honolulu, when I'd been with the organization in two two days. Uh, Before, one of the things we started every day at the winter meetings with was a, a general session with everybody who was there from the organization. This is what we were going to be going towards this and towards that. And and, and one of the first things he said to me, uh, he said, "I want you to, I want you to sit in on all these uh, trade sessions. And when we're talking about players, I want, I want you to sit in on those. Uh, And and I don't, I don't mean just sit in. I want to, I want everybody's opinion. And Talk to writers. You've observed. You've been around players from other teams. You talk to people on other teams on a regular basis. When you know something about a player, whatever it is, I want to know about mm-hmm. it. And I don't just sit there. I want you to speak up, the same as everybody else is speaking up. And that was, I think, one of his great strengths as a as a general manager was he he wanted to hear. Everybody's opinion, whether you agreed with him or you didn't agree with him about anything, any approach that he was making, he wanted to. Do, he wanted to hear what you had to say, and uh, it was um, then he would sort it. You know, he would sort it out in his own mind, and and take, uh, take advantage of of those things, whether he uh, liked them or didn't like them. He threw some out and accepted some, but he wanted to—he wanted to hear everybody's point of view on on situations. Mm-hmm. So that was—I think that was a, certainly a factor in, in his great success. It certainly was in my mind in, in watching him operate.
1: How about Dick Wagner.
0: Dick Wagner was a a, a different breed. Uh, he was. Uh, Very much the opposite in in my view from that standpoint was uh, he didn't really care much what anybody else uh, uh, had to say. He had his mind made up pretty much in advance to the point that he would often ask you for your opinion. uh, Whether it was a one-on-one or in a small group or a bigger group, he would ask people for their opinions. But before they could answer he would say here's what i think about it <laughs> and one of the things that i observed quite frequently was there were some people in the room that suddenly realized that was their exact feeling also <laughs> it was like <laughs> the the term yes man comes into play sure. yeah <laughs> And uh, it was like, I'm not going to... I see where he's going, and I am not going to challenge him on right. that.
1: He was a pretty intimidating he, guy, wasn't he?
0: He could be very intimidating. He, he did some things that were extremely nice for me, and he did some things that were not so nice for me, and I'm sure that that was... It, probably everybody who worked there could say the same thing about him.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I remember... When I first got a job in the in the Reds front office this was long after the Dick Wagner era but I remember pulling into that driveway one day uh in the parking garage and I was getting out of the car to go into the offices with somebody else that had worked under Dick Wagner and they had told me that he would he used to patrol the and I don't know how true this story was maybe you can verify he would patrol that parking garage and put his finger down on the on the concrete in the uh, on on the on the ground of the parking garage and if his he brought his finger up and if there was dirt on it he would make sure that somebody was out there in a matter of minutes cleaning the 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 ground of the parking garage
0: i i i i'm not familiar with that story but i, I it would not surprise me that it would be true <laughs> he he was very particular about the ballpark very particular about the uh the uh stadium operations people that that they were on top of every situation he also uh ruled things with a a, a very much an iron fist there i remember i remember one time that uh uh one one of the things that he was uh, really uh strong on was uh Down in the the driveway inside the stadium, the Mm -hmm. circle driveway around the tunnel, uh, he wanted that to be kept in a certain certain way. And one of the particular things was uh, they weren't televising. In those days, we televised maybe uh, uh, 30 or 35 games a year or something like that. Uh, but different teams would come in, and, and uh, there, there was a network television, uh, the Saturday game of the mm-hmm. week, and that sort of thing. And he gave strict rules that there were not to be any cables laying around <laughs> on the driveway. There were racks <laughs> up, el- elevated racks, yeah, that the yeah. cables had to be put in. Right. And of course, when the when the people came in from outside to to put, I mean, the WLWT was our local thing, and they knew all that. Yeah. No problem. But the other people would come in and, you know, they just wanted to put the the easy way. They were coming in for a one game or a two game thing and they would stretch the cables out. And, uh, and, and, and all of a sudden they were getting an order. You know, if you think you're going to televise tonight, you better have those up in the <laughs> trays or, or there isn't going to be any television.
2: Wow. And
0: wow. so one time, ABC, when ABC had, uh, I, that was, I think maybe it was a Monday night game of the week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there was some issue with ABC with their cables. And, uh, the, uh, the director came to me in the press box about 20 minutes or a half hour before game time. And he said, Our, uh, production, some of our production tech just told us that. That Wagner said that if the cable wasn't put in the in the trays prior to game time, he would go outside and pull the master plug <laughs> connecting our truck to the stadium.
1: Oh man!
0: And he said, "I." He said, "I will personally go out and disconnect your truck." And the guy said, "He's kidding. He he wouldn't do something like that." With it. I said if you want to televise, I would suggest you do that right now because he does not kid about things like that. Right. He will be out there pulling you're pulling the plug and there will not be the star of a telecast. Wow. And, and, and the guy took off. <laughs> and the cables were all in place in the trays. <laughs>
1: okay, what about Marge Shot?
0: Marge uh, was uh, different from everybody. Unfortunately...
1: How are you gonna get it on the elevator? <laughs> we're
0: not gonna get on the elevator. We can't have the press conference in the Crosley room up in the office level. I guess you know we could maybe she bring it, have the elephant delivered down on the field, <laughs> and we could have the press conference down in that interview room right off to the home plate right behind the home plate with the elephant right out right outside, you know, right out by home plate. Right, and so we kind of hemmed and hawed and talked around in circles for a couple minutes. And something she said triggered that she's talking about a dog rather than an elephant. And, and then, it's, uh, well, well, of course, that's would be no problem at all. But, you know, to bring Shotzi. And I would, I'm sure the people would love to get pictures of Shotzi and you and so forth. So. It all worked out, but it, it was kind of a terrifying moment for for about uh, two or three minutes until I figured out we were not going to have an elephant at the press conference.
1: Did you ever have to um, – I know some of the PR guys that came after you, Fergie, always talk about the Marge era and how they had to uh, type up the game notes on in the margins and on both sides of the paper because Marge was notoriously frugal. With how much money she spent on things like paper and stuff like that, did you experience yeah, I, anything I, like that
0: oh absolutely she uh in fact it was a, it was one of the uh, one of the challenges of of the job because uh first of all she uh she asked me one day uh, why we did a statistics sheet every day why couldn't I just pass it out like once a week? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, Marge. Stats change every game; they're meaningless, you know. If you don't, if they're not up, if you, you don't, if they aren't current, they're right. meaningless. Yeah. And so you have to have them every day. Well, I, I I think once a week ought to be plenty. Let them keep their own stats. We don't have to supply them with stats. <laughs> and of course, back when I when I was still involved in the early, the first part of that, we didn't have the stats like you have now, with where the commissioners office sends everything right uh, uh you know a package every day mm-hmm. uh it was uh you had to do your it, every team did their own stats and and printer you know typed them up and printed them every day and then ran off copies and so forth but the other thing that uh became an issue then was this wasted paper thing yeah we're, we're spending too much money wasting paper so she started uh, uh we had a, on the back wall of the press box, we had a, a bunch of boxes where each, each page, instead of putting together, uh, maybe there would be, uh, two pages of notes and a, and a stats page and a standing page. So there were, there were maybe four or five pages, uh, of, of handouts each day and then the visiting team. So we had maybe eight or ten boxes up there, and just put them all individually, so each guy uh, could just make his own set uh-huh. rather than yeah. than, uh, than going uh, to collate them and you know and do it all because there wasn't any any uh, machine that was <laughs> that solved that problem. <laughs> so she started. She, she would come. She was almost always sit down by the dugout, but. Uh, late in the game, she would come upstairs and walk through the press box and she saw there were still some paper in in these boxes. You know, you always have some left over every game. So she started, she had somebody in in stadium operations assigned to the job of, uh, in the eighth inning, every game, come to the press box, Collect all of the sheets that were still in the box. Count count how many numbers, pieces of paper there were. Put them in a package and deliver it to my office. <laughs> and uh, and so, but nothing was ever said to me, you know. And after after three or four days, uh, Steve shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was the uh, business the top executive. Right. He, he comes in one day and he said, uh, uh, you've been getting these packages from the of, the, of your notes. And I said, yeah, well, what, uh, but I, uh, they just bring me this package and and that's all I know about it. And he said, well, Marge wants to talk to you about it. She's really upset about all this <laughs> wasted paper and she's going to be wanting to talk to you about it. And I said, okay, and I'll talk to her. I went through, however many years of it, there was. <laughs> she never brought it up, <laughs> and it, 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 they came each day. And like I say, there was somebody assigned to this job, and counting them and they put them in a. We had big gray, like a Manila envelope, right. a big gray envelope, yep. and I started to stack over in the corner of my of my office. And uh, at the end of the season, they would you know they would be up uh, knee high or whatever <laughs> and uh i'd let them sit there until i left for spring training and <laughs> so it never came up during the winter i'd throw them all out
2: and
0: the next opening day we would start all over
1: <laughs> so she was probably we- spending more money on the person
0: why to count
1: the the stuff well, you even were just
0: buying the gray envelope <laughs> she spent more money on gray envelopes <laughs> so the other the other the other thing the way we uh, the other thing we did to get get around it was uh we would run off how many you know how many we thought we would need for that night yeah and 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 put half of them out in the box and leave the rest back in the uh in the In a storage room, we had back behind the press box, Uh and uh, and uh, uh, my John Browdy, my assistant, one of his jobs was periodically to take a look at the at the boxes to make sure they were still there, and uh, you know there were still some there, or go back and and replenish it, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) eight or ten at a time. So at the end of the when the eighth inning came around, there were never more than so you're two or three or four sheets in any of the boxes <laughs> and the rest of them were all back in the,
1: in the in the storage room and they would just pitch them, pitch them back there fergie you you are one of the nicest guys that i've known and i'm sure that's how you were when you know you were in charge of the pr department back in the day was there anybody in particular or was there anybody from that era when you worked that you just couldn't get along with, no matter how hard you tried?
0: Um, there were some that were a little difficult, but I, I wouldn't say there was anybody. The only people I really had a problem with was, uh, I'll use the word phony again, somebody who, who's. Wanted to get into credential because they wanted to come sit in the press box and they had no business there. Right. Yeah. And there was one individual in particular who I who I will not name. Yeah. But he did. He tried uh, a half a dozen different (laughs) ways to convince me uh, with with outside sources, other people speaking on his behalf, and I said
2: no. Right,
0: he doesn't belong her. He's got no business here. All he wants to do is sit in the press box, and I am not going to love it. And I never did.
1: <laughs> then now, uh, speaking of people that you you may, maybe couldn't get along with, I know Doug Flynn was always a problem for you, wasn't he? <laughs> Doug Flynn, <laughs> what a sweetheart! <laughs>
0: Doug Flynn is—he was so 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 great. He's to, the best to, to be around. It still is.
1: Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> uh,
0: absolutely, yeah.
1: I, I, one of my favorite stories about the 70s, uh, the late 70s, was when the Reds acquired Tom Seaver. And in his time with the Reds, he he singled out a longtime local writer named Joe Minster. And he, Joe Minster, and yeah. And he, he used to cut Joe's ties with a pair of scissors on a regular Joe, basis. Joe
0: wore some of the worst looking ties <laughs> you ever saw in the world. And 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 Seaver made it a a, a point to, <laughs> uh, I won't say aggravate him, but I, but I guess it, it's probably as good a word as any, to aggravate him, and 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 made it a point to deal with him in a in a fairly good you know in a good natured way. Sure, he wasn't yeah, yeah. Mean, mean about it at all because Seaver wasn't a mean guy. Uh, but uh, he he would go to interview Seaver after a game <laughs> on occasion, and he'd say. That is the worst. You've had some bad ties, but this is the worst one I have ever seen. Whack, uh, there it goes. And then he'd, he'd
1: snip it with some it. scissors. He'd it.
0: He'd scissors and cut it. Oh, Seaver <laughs> was, Dever was a, a really an interesting guy to deal with, and uh, uh, particularly because coming in here To him, uh, with a special request, which you had all the time sure, yeah. during the during the machine days. Mm-hmm. Always get special requests of various types, and so many players in, in any era. When you ask them to do something, even if they're going to do it, or if they're not going to do it, they don't want to give you. A direct answer. It's, uh, well, let me think about it. Uh, yeah, I can do it, uh, and then later say no. I changed my mind. I don't want to do it. Fergie, it still whatever. happens
1: today. Let me tell you, I'll I, be I'm the sure. first to attempt sure,
0: I'm sure that is a, a, an eternal problem. Yes. When I when I first started dealing with Siever, and I went to him, and and he always gave me. A yes or a no. That's awesome. He never said, Ask me later, maybe, yeah. let me think about it. He would say yes or he would say no.
1: And that's all which, we're looking for. Which
0: is all I wanted, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And then, then he added, after that, the first time he ever said that, then he added, However, <laughs> if you come to me, with something that is really you feel is really important to the club say that to me and i will be there
1: yeah excellent excellent which
0: which is that is like a bonus a yeah, bonus sure. feature absolutely because even if he wanted to say no he would tell me he would do it if i said this is this one is important yeah. this one isn't just something that you know i'd like you to do yeah. this
1: one's important mm-hmm. absolutely Alright, well, uh, hey, take me back to spring training 1989. That's when all hell broke loose. Were you uh, Were you prepared for the Pete Rose story, or was it something that oh, you didn't see coming? Oh, yeah. absolutely
0: not. Absolutely not. It, it came totally out of the blue. Uh, I went, I, I, I got, we were playing, the, the day the story broke, uh, I we were Cardinals in St. Petersburg, and I went to the office uh, in Plant City, uh, you know, like at 8 o'clock or 7.30 or something in the morning to do a little work and get my stuff together before I went to St. Petersburg, Uh and there's like two TV trucks there and a a whole bunch of cars, and... uh, I went in and said, what's going on? And they said, they told me what was going on. This story had broken out of New York. Sports Sports Illustrated, I think, broke the story. And uh, that was the first that I knew about it. And I I said, well, I'm going to get over to St. Petersburg. So we went over and I walk walk into the ballpark in St. Petersburg and I uh a security guard down by the entrance to the uh to the they had a, like a, a little tunnel leading to the two clubhouses mm-hmm. and uh and they said uh what do you wanna how do you want what how, what do you wanna do with the with the with the media today and i said what you know uh, what what media are you talking about now and i said uh, i assume we've got a lot of extra people and it said come take a look. Mm. And I walked out to the dugout and in a big semicircle between the third baseline and the dugout on the grass there are probably fifty or sixty people. Oh my uh, six or eight television cameras, yeah. phot- photographers in a big semicircle facing the dugout, with their back to the field, <laughs> I said, "Oh my!" Yeah. So I I went to the the Cardinal office, you know, to sit down with the with their guy, and uh, we worked out a, a plan where, well, first of all, I closed the clubhouse. I said the clubhouse is closed to everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete had, had, The team was. Uh, who had just arrived but Pete uh, was not there he uh, as a common occurrence he did he drove separately he used when if, if it was uh, uh, particularly if it was a close trip like Lakeland or St Petersburg or Clearwater or something like that uh, he would uh, stay and watch uh, with the guys who were left behind and you know would be a, right. Watch, watching their workout yeah. and and then he and uh uh Jim Cott when he was the pitching coach uh or whoever it might be they would drive to the and and show up at the ballpark about 30 minutes before game time something like that so uh we closed the clubhouse and Pete was not there yet and uh so we worked out a, a plan to have All the, uh, the game was not sold out, so there was room up in the stands for the media. We worked out, and all photographers had to be back up against the, uh, with their backs up on the field, but up against the, uh, you know, the stadium wall. Yeah. And uh, beyond the dugouts from there on out. So they were lined up all over the place and most of them wanted to be on the first base side sure. where they could shoot into our dugout mm-hmm. on the third base side. Mm-hmm. And uh that first day uh Pete said he was not he was I, I I don't remember exactly what he said but I don't know if he addressed anything on that situation but we we sort of made it uh that he would talk about uh the team, you know, what whatever the normal the normal type post game type yeah, thing yeah. which we arranged with uh, with our with our beat riders who were with us uh, for the spring and uh i think that was as far as we got that first day and did then, you have uh, to did
1: you have to contact the front office to let you know ownership and you know whoever was in charge at that time marge i guess know what was going on
0: Uh, I, I did through, uh,
1: through the general manager. Okay. Wow. That, that, did, did Pete Uh, know it was coming? Did he, did he sense anything that? Well, uh, he, he had been,
0: uh, he had been summoned to the commissioner's office like a week earlier. And, but they had some kind of a story concocted that there was some, Reason he needed to be there, mm-hmm. and I don't remember what it was. it was. Not it was not gambling, but it was something else. Yeah, that that they that some investigation that he was supposed to be a witness for or something. So I, I, I he had to know that there was. I, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know that he knew that it was breaking that day. I, I don't know that. I don't right. know, but but he knew there was stuff in the winds because they'd had this. Meeting in the commissioner's office a, w- a week earlier. Yeah, uh, and and it was one of those things where he flew up. He was just he was away from spring training for one day. He flew to New York in the morning, or maybe the night before, and was back that that afternoon or something. So it was not a big deal that him being gone. It was it was noted, but it was it was not a, a not a big deal. At, but then,
1: at what point? At what point in the season, or maybe even spring, did you realize that? this is pretty serious and then at what point did it become a distraction
0: well it became a distraction pretty much right away but it it it, it uh i guess it uh it, it it was pretty pretty clear early that it that it was a a, a major deal but not as big as it you know as it eventually came as mm-hmm more things kept popping up and more revelations kept coming up and more witnesses uh, so-called witnesses or whatever or people involved started talking and uh and the the three major networks at the time ABC, NBC and CBS were always around mm-hmm. and uh as we the one thing that uh, I will will say uh on, uh, on behalf of the uh, of the club that which which I appreciated very much was that they I, I was told that you know to deal with it the way I felt was the best to deal with it
2: mm-hmm.
0: without a lot of orders and it was they were mm-hmm. going to back me and whatever uh, uh, whatever was the, uh, whatever I decided and of course, I was I was working with the commissioner's office, and the, and the commissioner's office uh, gave me that same courtesy. That yeah. They said we, you know, deal with, deal with it as you think is best for the club yeah. and yeah. and for the for the players and so forth. And uh, if we see something that we think we, you know, that that isn't. You can't do it that way. We'll tell you, yeah. but otherwise we'll back you in whatever you decide to do. Yeah, and uh, so basically, once we got into the season, uh, Pete was available uh, to the, the we to to baseball media, yeah. not
1: right baseball news media. media.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was he was available. On the field to uh, to any credited media, mm-hmm. and so he could control whether he was sitting in the dugout or not sitting in the dugout, yeah, and uh, or standing around the batting cage. The clubhouse uh, rules were, which had been pretty much wide open all the time. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't have much in the way of restrictions at all prior to that. Uh, we we settled it on more of a of a time factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the people who were news people who were there, whether they're local, local or national, uh, were not permitted in the in the clubhouse. Wow. Uh, but they were uh, they had free access to uh, any pregame, postgame press conferences. Huh. And uh, we moved. They uh, moved those out of his office to the interview room yeah. behind home plate. Right. And uh, I, I got uh, people from the the three networks and the local news stations, uh, and I said, "Here's what we're going to do after every game. And if you go along with me, we'll continue this. If not, we'll try, we'll have to figure out something that's more stringent." Yeah. I said. I will bring Pete to the interview room after every game and he will answer only baseball questions sure. mm-hmm. as long as there are baseball
1: questions. And for, those, end, and for those people that, that don't know why you would do that, that might not understand, it's because you, Fergie, as the Reds club PR representative are trying to protect the team. And your Absolutely. and your brand but and and
0: and and, I, and we didn't want every player in the clubhouse being bombarded sure. with questions about a situation that they didn't really know anything about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and whether any of them knew anything or not, I don't know. But but basically, they didn't. They were pretty much in the dark as 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 uh, a lot of us were yeah. about the true facts of the sure. situation. Did it af- so, did it affect Why put them, them up? To, you know, why 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 would you let them be? Exactly. Uh, have to contend with stuff like that.
1: Did it affect the players?
0: I'm sure it affected some, although I I, I don't think it it was really bad because uh, they we we were able to protect them from yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And, and and the other part of the of these post-game things was I told I told these people that once, we have finished baseball questions. You are free to ask Pete whatever you want to ask him, mm. but you wait until the baseball yep. questions are answered. Yep. Now, if he said, if he wants to answer them, he'll answer them. Yep. If he wants to just look at you and walk out the door, he's going to look at you and walk <laughs> out the door.
2: Yeah.
0: And so they were all in agreement. I mean, they they may not have liked it, but you know they they had to accept those conditions. And um,
1: so the writers still had access to the clubhouse though, right? Like the, the baseball writers still had access to the clubhouse yeah. after and before the games. Yeah.
2: Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. I, I can't remember exactly how we did limit it somewhat before the game, but I don't, I don't think it was ever, uh, there may have been a, you know, a day when something happened that we said, you know, just close today or something, but uh, I, I, I believe they always had some access prior to the game and they had free access on the field, obviously.
1: That Uh, that had to be for you a really long year, 89. So, you
0: know, I I have said many, many times, uh, everything that you, uh, that, that you do in, uh, in baseball, when you've got a, Something that you knew is going to be a, a really tough job. Yeah. It always has a starting point and an ending point. <laughs> you know, whether it's uh, going to spring training and the different work conditions you have there, or uh, getting through a all star game, or getting through a postseason, or a mm-hmm. World Series, or whatever, you know. You can keep telling yourself, "I just have to get to next Friday, and it's over." Yeah. And with this, there was no end in sight. Uh, and and uh, as you probably recall, at, at the just before uh, he was suspended, it was looked like he was going to go into the uh, court. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if it got in the courts, that meant. It was probably going to go on for another year yeah. and into mm-hmm. another season. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, it's just like, oh, this 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 will never end.
1: So, with that but, being said, the eighty that that long nightmare of a season in nineteen eighty nine did it make nineteen ninety that much sweeter for you?
0: Oh, absolutely,
2: <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> I mean, nineteen nineteen ninety was probably.
1: two surprises two years in a row one was a not a very good one and then the other one was a very pleasant surprise
0: yeah absolutely absolutely. Did, and did, the, one, one of the strangest things about the Or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and they would be back, but then they'd be there a couple of days, and things would die down, and off they would go again. But the ABC was there every day. How,
1: how, how was how was Pete behind the scenes? Was he business as usual, or could you tell it was wearing on him?
0: Oh, it was very. He was very frustrated by it because I, I, I really, I mean, he gave the impression, and I. And I sort of think he really believed it at least for a long time mm-hmm. that he was he was gonna beat it, yeah, he, he kept thinking he was you know i i can get a i can get away with this i'm gonna beat this. uh wow. and so it he had to deal with that uh,
1: a couple and more that, questions but, for you Fergie. Yeah. um give me uh some from that 75 76 team and then and then again in that 90 team some of the a couple things that might stand out for you personally during those seasons
0: well the the 75 World Series was the standout of everything because they can say what they want about this year yeah it was 75 was still the greatest world Series ever played yeah Every game was was full of excitement. Every game was was uh, had its had its moment. Uh, the the the, uh, the Carlton's fifth home run in Game Six, which caused many people today still to think the Red Sox won that <laughs> series because all they ever show the highlights is fifth getting the home run. Yeah, exactly. And, and every I I would say that uh, at least. 20 or 30 times, maybe 50 times, I've seen that highlight on a, a stadium scoreboard when I was in the press box, and people were talking about that, and I would hold up my hand with my 75 World Series ring <laughs> and I'd say, you can say what you want about Fisk, but I'm wearing the ring. <laughs> <laughs> it was a—I I had a good comeback for anybody yeah, that ever mentioned absolutely. the '75 World Series. Absolutely. But uh, then, uh, then the way it ended—you uh, know, the, the, the next day, uh, or I don't know if it was the next day—we had so much rain up right, there yeah. <laughs> that we stayed around forever.
2: <laughs> we, we
0: went up there. It was, it was kind of funny because everybody went up there. Basically, packed for for an overnight trip because we we knew we were going to win Game Six, so wasn't any question. Right, Uh, and we were just going to fly up, play, win Game Six, and fly back home and celebrate. And we ended up being there like five days or six days. So everybody was at department stores buying clothes,
1: wearing the same thing. Yeah, Yeah, about about uh, about ninety. What stands out for you in nineteen ninety? Nineteen
0: ninety, the 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 real. Standout thing was uh, Eric Davis getting injured.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: and it was uh, I ended up being down in the, in the clubhouse, you know, during the game to check on him and, and to make some kind of an announcement uh, about uh, what was happening and that he was being sent to the hospital and so forth and so on and all the concern over that and. Uh, in a in a, in a matter of uh, of uh, dealing with non baseball, you yeah, know, with dealing sure. with with the, with his situation rather than what was happening on the field. And fortunately, fortunately, we uh, we won the game uh, and and it was over because you know if if we had lost that game, uh, we might not have won the series. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: Oakland. Now we're we're without our. Our star uh, outfielder and top hitter, and uh, our pitching situation was uh, not in real good shape. And uh, who knows what would have happened if uh, you know if Oakland wins that game, they might they might win four in a row. Yeah,
1: hey, you were also without Billy Hatcher as well, who was having a great series up to that. Oh, point.
0: Billy, Billy Hatcher was uh, was was sensational in that. I think he ended up hitting seven fifty.
2: Yeah.
1: and
0: playing great in the outfield. Yeah. He was uh, he 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 was just uh, he just came out of uh, I won't say came out of nowhere because he was he was a good ball player. but but, uh, he 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 certainly exceeded what anybody expected him to do uh, in in that situation
1: Mm -hmm. Fergie what's the uh, what are your thoughts on this current Reds team.
0: Well, it was it was encouraging to see some of the, the you know the way they played the last two months of the season. Uh some of the some of the young guys really came on and uh uh it it's going to be it, it unfortunately it's almost never a quick fix and this one certainly isn't isn't going to be a quick fix, but uh uh some of the young pitching you you it, it it looks like they just need to find consistency. That that the arms are there, and then the ability is there, and they have to find consistency. And it's uh, the most frustrating thing with young pitchers. I think I've always thought is is control. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you just can't walk people. Yeah, and and it, particularly walking the leadoff man anytime you walk the leadoff man in an inning you're you're asking for trouble sure. and that seems to be a the, 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 the two things that that i think are most upsetting and have to be to a manager or a pitching coach and and it seems like this team in particular although maybe it's that way with every team how often you see a, a pitcher and it's usually a starting pitcher get the first guy out get the second guy out walk the third guy yeah. <laughs> yeah, walk the third guy and open the door, and then a hit follows, and then another yeah. hit follows, and it looks like you've had an easy one-two-three inning, and instead so. you're giving up a run or two.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey Fergie, it's been we've been talking for a while, and I feel like we haven't even gotten to the surface of the things that I wanted to talk about. So I think we should do this again. All right. <laughs> Maybe we'll bring you into my, the my office schedule
0: is, My schedule is uh, very open <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure, Fergie I, I'm proud to call you a friend And I, I could listen to you tell stories all day And uh, I, I, Me personally, I learn a lot from you And I really appreciate that And I appreciate that you would come on and talk to us
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, I, anytime
1: Alright, that's Jim Ferguson, thanks Fergie All right, Jamie. Thanks. Take take care. Thank you. As if you couldn't tell, Jim Ferguson is an absolute sweetheart of a man. What an awesome human being who, in my opinion, deserves a place in the Reds Hall of Fame. Fergie is one of those guys who had a front row seat for some of the biggest events in Reds history and who has been counted on to preserve the legacy of the franchise. A true pro and a true gentleman, Jim Ferguson, a big thanks to him for joining us this week. And more thank yous go out to the Cincinnati Reds and to my main man, Nick Prince, the best technical director in the history of podcast. Without Nick, this Better Off Red podcast would not exist. Join us next time as we bring you yet another extraordinary guest. This is the Better Off Red podcast. I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news.